and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here for another thrilling, tantalising episode of the Bond Daft Project. Ranking Bond continues. Today we are discussing the villain schemes. Uh, these are kind of the plot, I suppose, in a sense, uh, with the focus on the actual villain's uh, motivations. And here for that discussion is my free Bond aficionados, Francis Murphy. Yo, yo, yo. Gordon Webster. Good evening, Mr. Barry. And Steve McCall. A very good evening to you all. Good evening. Let's, uh, yes, we're here, of course, as I said, to kind of get into some of the... I mean, I don't know what is it our favourites, because this isn't really a collective one. We're going to rank them or anything like that. It's just talking about some of our favourites. Um, and if there's any least favourites, of course, feel free to air them as well. Uh, some of the, 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 the villains have uh, sort of mega maniacal uh, plans. Um, and there's also the more grounded stories. Um, I'm just curious to hear what everyone's uh what's everyone's take what's everyone's favorites for this well uh let's start with birthday boy himself gordon webster thank you mr barry i would probably say my my favorite because it's realistic and grounded is from rush with love because it's not laughing saying oh it's I love it so much because it's so insane. It, it's because because it's realistic and because you know the Bond's been lured into a trap. Because knowing that that whole film, I guess the viewers are one step ahead of Bond because early in the film, you see the meeting between Blofeld and and Rosa Klebb and Kronstein where he's getting them to plan away a particularly humiliating death as Blofeld causes, causes it for Bond. And But you don't quite know what's ahead, so it's enough there to... It's a, it's a plot that does keep you guessing, but you know there's something bad going to happen to Bond. And I like the way again. It is it's sort of it's almost like a you know three villains really if you if you look at it that way. But the way that it, it's quite appropriate they have Kronstein playing the game of chess because they're kind of using Bond as one of the the chess pieces in this elaborate game. I like the way how Red Grant's used to. To actually, he's actually sent out to protect Bond to make sure he gets on the train, but make sure that first he gets the lector. And the way that um, not only is Bond used, but Tatiana's used as well. It's and again, I think that really got to give you Fleming credit because it was him that came up with that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, is there any others, or are you is that your your kind of main one you wanted to talk about? Well, from uh, if we're talking about. So, yeah, I've picked one just because it's maybe, you know, the most uh, kind of clever one and light and most likely to happen in the spy world. So that was why From Rush With Love was maybe my number one. So I've not really thought about this, but to, to pick one that I enjoy just for the flamboyance of it and the, and it just encapsulating the, the essence of Bond, I would say, hmm... I think a view to a kill is a contender, and also I think I feel Moonraker's a contender. Mm-hmm. Moonraker's just insane. But what I love about it is how I might mention them both sort of in equal levels. In in Moonraker, there's a lot of moving parts to Drax's scheme. I like the way that Drax he has the his globes that are meant to obviously distribute poison to the planet. How there's he's using different parts of his 
of Drax Industries to in different parts of the world. You know, there's a link between what, everything that happens early in the film and in his Chateau in France is linked to like the manufacturing of the I think it's the manufacturing of the actual globes themselves and the glass factory in Venice and then how that eventually leads Bond to Rio and Rio's where and then I think Rio's where some of the stuff's getting shipped to. Because I think that's like is that maybe partly where the globes are getting assembled? Or something, and then, but then the actual shuttles taking off from, I think it's somewhere in the Amazon. So there's a lot of parts that lead us to that. And yeah, there's just, you've just kind of got to, like we've mentioned in previous podcasts, Moonraker's a sort of film you just want to sit back and just have fun with. Like, if you just want a kind of good time bond to, to just enjoy and chill out to Moonraker, I mean, Moonraker, I've said before, it's a film I keep going back to. I love Roger, and obviously, um, I love Michael Lonsdale's Drax, not as Keenan Jaws for most of it, but I mean Moonraker's other. I think I like I like with a view to a kill kind of um again there's a bit of I guess you could say it's kind of recycling the Goldfinger plot, but I think that's why it doesn't rank as high for me in that sense, just because of yeah. you can it's kinda of transparent that they've kinda of used a a similar plot and yeah. thing, you know. I mean, it's well, it's not a major criticism of it. It's fine that they were doing, they were modernizing that thing with the um, Silicon Valley esque focus. Yeah, yeah I, not... I kind of like the way with that though. How how again, Zorin's using people. He's using that oil expert, the guy Bob Connolly, who who's got a big. Um, he's hit. I think he's he's got his big oil company, but he doesn't realize that Zorin's actually using him to actually cause something catastrophic and the so way you, it's sorry Gordon do you want to know the big flaw with Zorin right this is the reason I love it is the reason I love it and I, f- I think I forgot to mention this on the podcast before but see when Zorin destroys Silicon Valley he's actually going to destroy all the people who buy microchips <laughs> so it's actually the customers yeah. <laughs> it's the customers he'd be looking for so they don't actually manufacture microchips in Silicon Valley but those are the people who buy them so by destroying Silicon Valley, he's actually ruined his whole scheme. But there's another one that's similar to that, where um, like when Trevelyan steals the money, and then once they destroy the economy, the money would be worthless. <laughs> so yeah. like, there's a few occasions where the villains actually make plans that would immediately ruin their plan, like if they carry it out. Yeah. But I love the Zorin one for that. Like I just had to point that out before we move on to something else. Like that's one of the reasons that Zorin's scheme is one of my favourites because it's so crazy. Like it's so. It, I sometimes think did Zorin know that and he just doesn't care. Yeah, I like the way. Possibly. See, I, I guess it comes down to see with the likes of that in Moonraker. I just like, or, or from Russia with Love, I like detail. Just with with a lot of things in life, I, I just I like small detail. I like the way that Zorin's is he has he's launching this um this it's like a basically dynamiting the lake to flood Salkin Valley. And the, the way he's he's um, organised it so it's at the peak of the spring tide. Obviously, that's where Stacey eventually kind of comes in in her like geological expertise. She points out to Bond, she's like, oh, they're, they're going for... He's going to do it at the peak of the spring tide for maximum effect. And they were basically looking at the kind of um, computer diagram, which is showing the way that he's going to flood... That he's done it, you know, he's, he's deliberately kind of causing an explosion over the fault line. He's taking advantage of the fact that the San Andreas fault lies there. So, you know, that's that's kind of cool. I, yes, I guess I, I just kind of like like the detail that goes into some of these. I like, I mean, I like with a film, a clever plot, but one that, one that makes you think, but not that it's, it's 
so complicated that it takes you out of the film for a minute or two to think, well, um, how will that work, you know? And I guess um, it has taken me, you know, most probably most of the Bond films, it's, got, it's multiple viewings that's allowed me to actually properly digest the plot. Okay. Uh, Steve, what about yourself? Um, I'm kind of going to pick up from where uh, Gordon left slightly. Um, there's two that I think I'm going to mention in one go. What I quite like with a Bond villain scheme is when I'm kind of siding almost with the villain. So there's two that kind of uh, slip into that category. Those, I think, are particularly A View to a Kill and Man with a Golden Gun. So, I mean, as Gordon mentioned, A View to a Kill is Zorin basically wanting to set off an earthquake under Silicon Valley so they can monopolize the microchip market. They're not particularly in favor of monopolization. But there's just something particularly, the time that we're living in now, about taking out Silicon Valley that's actually kind of appealing. You know, all the social media companies and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's, there's kind of a small part of me that's like, actually, I'm kind of with Zorin on this one, despite him being completely psychopathic. And similarly, with uh, Man with a Golden Gun, Scaramanga, I think we kind of covered this, because it kind of, we look on it now slightly differently to perhaps how it was back then. But he's basically trying to sell a piece of technology to the highest bidder that would effectively solve the world's energy crisis by producing solar energy. The guy was a kind of environmental prisoner, <laughs> if you like. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't particularly approve of the stealing or the kind of highest bidder capitalist ideals, but I'm kind of on board with that, um, with that whole kind of uh, concept, that whole idea. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I find that quite funny. And I suppose it was mentioned that, that, I mean, A View to a Kill, as we mentioned, is basically aping the Goldfinger yes. plot, yeah. which is basically... Similarly, nuclearizing the U.S. gold reserves, which I, again, I, I do kind of like that. It's as I mentioned, I think in the previous one, it's actually quite a smart idea because you you go through the film thinking that he's getting this um this nuclear bomb to to set off, and it's actually or you so you think that he's going to steal the gold, I should say, out of uh, Fort Knox, but then when you establish there's actually a sort of mathematical devaluing point to it, you can actually go, yeah, yes, that's actually quite smart. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, is, is poisoning gold even a criminal offence? He's basically, I mean, if anything, he's guilty of breaking and entering and vandalism. <laughs> yeah, which which the point. average Ned gets um, arrested for on a, a Saturday night. So he's basically just a Ned. I love that. You, you uh, should be his lawyer. Like, you know, just... Free <laughs> <laughs> Goldfinger. Reduce the charges. <clears throat> yeah, that's interesting. Okay, okay. Uh, I love how as well, well, it's the thing about these Bond villains is they don't just want to quietly um, have their plans for world domination happen and that be it done. They want, they always seem to want Bond to see it happen, don't they? Oh, they have to show it off, yeah. Particularly in the, the case of Goldfinger, where it's in a big room, and it's the way that they also um, they have they they explain. I suppose they kind of do this for the benefit of the viewers. They explain exactly every step of what they've done and why they're doing they do it they they tend to have one big kind of grandstand speech to bond don't they well it's like a, it's like an ex it's kind of a master class in exposition isn't it and how you don't like basically tell don't show you know what i mean but um, the thing about it is what's quite funny is that uh, the thing with bond the bond conventions are almost uh, it's like it's almost like the kind of thing you get with a villain in a pantomime 
like where the villain comes on the stage and everybody knows everything and it's like oh you know oh no he didn't blah blah you know this kind of thing <laughs> like yeah. there's a thing that's like that about Bond I think I don't know if anybody else feels that I don't yeah. know if there's a, there's other um, it's, I, I'm not sure if in other films where there's a, a kind of megalomaniac type villain I'm not sure if they certainly they don't follow that same sort of formula usually and right I'm going to take the the good guy and I'm going to put them in a situation where they're sort of restrained, but I'm I'm going to just kind of revel in the joy of my great plan and and, to, and just show why I'm doing it. It's like, I'm not just going to do this, but I'm doing it and I wanted you to know that. It's that sort of thing. It's like Goldfinger was the classic example. He had he couldn't just have Bond sit in his cell. Like he had to, Bond had to be in Fort Knox. Not only had to be in Fort Knox, but he had to be in the bloody room that the bomb was going off. If you went to that much effort, you want you want to show off to someone about it. Exactly. Yeah, but, what, but why is it always the one person who could destroy the plan? I mean, why can't you just get someone else, like some civilian, and just be like, "Look, look at all this stuff that I've done." <laughs> yeah, like John. I just and, get back to your cleaning, but at first, I'll try to show you all this stuff. Yeah, I think <laughs> one of the very things hard to work. work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of this comes back to Fleming, but it's probably mostly just the like bringing this hero character to the cinema screen. A lot of it's the actual screenwriting, but it's. I think it's meant to show the sort of like the opposites of like how different Bond is. Bond is like, he's kind of a professional killer, but no matter what actor plays him, he's always got that kind of um, wink and a, you know, a glint in his eye, like the kind of, this cool slick hero, but then opposite him is just the, you know, the most kind of evil, but, but over, overly eccentric character. Do you know what? It's like, it's hard, it's hard to explain, but the, yeah, it's just they created. They always created this environment where it it always came to the you know, generally the villains at some kind of layer, whether it's a definite layer or it's like a moving layer. Obviously, like Trevelyan had his he had like a moving layer almost with the train, if you could classify that as a layer. But that's we talk about like the you know the tropes of Bond and the villains. There's always that room, and there's always some kind of big speech, and there's always. Um, and there's this obviously common thing but the villain sometimes dies with a little bit of the film to go but his henchman comes back mm. you know it's, yep. it's it's just it's one of the things that I, to me anyway just always drew me to Bond yeah there's a comfort in the familiar I suppose um, but yeah uh, <clears throat> Fran right so what I was supposed to do a couple then I mean I've got a few that I wanted to kind of bring up but I'll try and br- I'll do them quite briefly yeah okay <clears throat> but um, basically, the stuff like my favorite thing about the schemes is the uh, my favorite schemes are the ones that are a bit mad. Like I like the fa- I like the fa- the idea that the Bond villains are doing something that's completely mental. Do you know what I mean? Or or pointless. Um, for instance, uh, when Blofeld uh, wants to build the super big giant super laser out of all the diamonds and all that, the big diamond type thing. Oh God, um, diamonds are forever. Uh, so the whole idea, right? So the whole idea behind this is to get the world to hand over the the nuclear weapons or to pay, right? But the reason I love this scheme, right? I love this scheme because uh, Blofeld, right? There's a number of things that Blofeld does that just make me laugh, right? So he, he's got doubles of himself and he tries to like change his appearance so that MI6 can't find him, right? But MI6 already thinks he's dead, right? So there's almost no point in him doing it. And then there's also um, uh, so he, he's he's doing this thing with the laser to basically like get the, the world to pay up money to him. 
but he's already successfully managed to become a, a billionaire like by taking over this guy's life so he's already got the lifestyle <laughs> like he's living the like how much more money does he need do you know what i mean so there's like a number of things going on there that even though the film itself do you know what i mean I, I wasn't a big fan of that film really really i mean it wasn't a special amazing film but i just like that scheme i think it's just it's mad it's completely crazy um obviously i talked about um zorin destroying his own customers as well, which I always found that to be quite funny. The idea of Zorin. But I could see Zorin doing something like that. I mean, Zorin was the guy who laughed as he was about to die. So, like, the idea of Zorin, like, just doing something completely irrational makes sense to me. Like, I, 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 it's not outside the realms of possibility. Um, what else do we have? I mean, I know we've talked about uh, Drax. I think I mentioned the idea. No, this was when we were on the break. I was talking about the fact that Drax, like... Steve McCall, what was the I what was the way you described it? The thing Drax would have had to do to make sure the nerve agent didn't destroy. Oh, because the nerve agent only killed humans, so he'd presumably have had to have carried out some kind of clinical trials to <laughs> make sure that only similar to the way they're testing the COVID vaccine, he'd have to test his um his thing out on uh, every species, pretty much. <laughs> uh, well, I think we know he definitely tested it on, on rats, but I don't. That surely couldn't. It couldn't have just ended there, because remember the lab in Venice. There's, you can see those guys are are killed by the canister. The bond like kind of leaves there, and the, it falls, and but the rats are still fine. But yeah, I know it's like there must have been a bit more to it than that. Yeah. Well, I. Uh, I mean, I guess it's the implausibility of it sometimes. Um. Obviously, you've got. I mean, funnily enough, I'm I'm taking the Mickey out of Trevelyan a wee bit. I think I said this earlier on as well. But this idea of Trevelyan stealing money and then destroying the economy so that the money's worthless. Yeah. So his plan, but the the thing is, Trevelyan's that was almost like a, you know, that was all just a function in order, f- you know, to get the revenge thing going on between him and Bond. You know, like the schemes. The, the more I think about the James Bond schemes. They're almost all a bit mad, aren't they? And a, yeah. And, 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 and ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, that's why you watch Bond film. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where you lose a little bit of it with... Oh, and I like the fact that Dr. No wanted revenge on the world because simply um, they didn't appreciate his genius. He's <laughs> such an egotistical madman. I mean, you know, he just... But they didn't think I was very clever, so we destroy them all, you know? Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, the thing with... <laughs> the thing with the... Uh, the Daniel Craig Bond is that it's lost a little bit of that charm. I think that's something that's lost in the sense that sometimes, sometimes you just don't want things to be realistic. Sometimes it needs to be just, it doesn't need to be, but sometimes you just are in the mood to sit down and watch somebody, just something mental. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I mean, opportunities like an octopus, you get to see Bond in a clown outfit running into circus to, Stop a nuclear bomb. Do you know what I mean? Like these things wouldn't have happened in the Daniel. Can you imagine Daniel Craig like dressed up as a clown, like running in? I mean, it just wouldn't work. Yeah. Um. Like uh, my favorite schemes would not be the ones like oh the chiffre. You know, you wanted the money to pass on through the whatever laundering scheme they've got going on and get it to the dictator. That's boring. I mean, uh, what, I, yeah. want, what yeah. I want actually is weird stuff like Drax taking people into space. Do you know what I mean? And then, like, uh, that's another thing about Drax's scheme there, right? Now, someone remind me, did because he brought, did, was it Drax that brought Jaws up there? 
I was wondering that too because he doesn't quite, he definitely doesn't fit into this sort of uh-huh. perfect master well, race. Drax says that to him when he's there, right? But that's the thing is imagine the security risk of, <laughs> of taking someone like Jaws to the space station only to reveal to them you're going to kill them. I mean, Jaws is not be the guy you'd want trapped on a space station <laughs> with you. You know what I mean? Like running the one man who can eat a space station. Uh-huh. No, just, <laughs> rampage. And the most incredible thing about that is you can liken this to a lot of the other Bond films that maybe you only live twice is, is that, I mean, the, the villain is generally, they have their big sort of like control center within some kind of massive layer. It's meant to be a secret layer, but I don't see how you could construct a huge space station secretly without anyone knowing. It's like, I mean, you only live twice. Like, I don't know how Blofeld could like take over the inside of a hauled out volcano and can do that, all that construction and nobody ever kind of witnessing it. Like, would the authorities not be quite interested in that? Or even like Trevelyan, like, you know, how does Trevelyan, you know, create this base underneath a huge satellite dish under a lake? I know. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, the thing about the. Uh, for instance, the space station one in particular is you can only launch from certain places on Earth and at certain times. I mean, that's why NASA like has, you know, is it Cape Canaveral and all that? Yeah. Like, these places are, you know, they just pick them at random, you know. I mean, these are important, like, where they are. So if if Drax had somehow found another place to launch from, and, I mean, the government have radar, they'd be thinking to themselves, what are these rockets? launching for into space. Do you know what I mean? There's also the fact that let's not forget that Drax had managed to develop cloaking devices. Cloaking devices, like invisibility cloaks, screens. I mean, this is just, I mean, it, obviously Drax must have just watched Star Wars and just got <laughs> really excited by it at the time. I mean... What what was that? And what bit was that? Cloaking devices. I'm pretty sure they, they, they were able to like cloak the ships or something that they had. Now, that might have been the reason they were able to get with the rockets up. I don't know. I can't remember exactly how it worked. Mm. Hmm. I could be misremembering. can't remember that, yeah. I was yeah, nodding I'm along, sure. but now I think about it. I, I remember being quite shocked. Well, it stuck in my mind because I was surprised. Cause I thought, my God, I mean, rockets you could accept. Space station you could accept. But cloaking devices was also the lasers as well, wasn't there? And uh, Well, yeah. And I agree, I agree with the thing you said as well, but these, especially the really super rich ones like Drax, it's like they have all the money in the world and, you know, what, what more do they want? I mean, Drax, even like when, when Corinne DeFour's piloting Bond towards Drax's chateau in the helicopter near the start, she says, um, well, I suppose she doesn't really know his true intentions, really. She ends up dead, but she says um, what he doesn't, was it? She says something along the lines of what Bond says. Oh, I'm sure he, did he try and buy the Eiffel Tower as well? And she, she says like what what he doesn't own, he doesn't want. You know, but that's the thing. If if you're like him or or Zorin, like the super or Goldfinger, the super rich ones, it's like money and you know all these um, people doing things for them. You know, any woman they want, it's like it's never enough for them, is it? Well, I almost feel like. Is it possible the James Bond villains are doing it for their own mental health? Like, I remember Notch from the guy. <laughs> I saw that little smile there, Gordon. But the uh, yeah, the guy Notch who created Minecraft sold it for like two billion dollars or whatever to Microsoft, and he's put a tweet up and he was saying, "Now I've got no reason to live. Like, there's nothing. There's no point. You know what I mean?" Like I don't, I'm not striving for anything anymore. Like I just have everything. Having everything's the worst thing in the world. So maybe the Bond villains are like Notch. Maybe like they're just trying to find purpose for their lives. Do you know what I mean? That you know, I mean. But then again, I suppose if you look at the um, 
uh, God, what's the name of it? Call of Cthulhu and all that. What's the name of the Lovecraft. the? I Lovecraft. Um, you could also say that the Bond villains are an expression of the idea that good is actually the aberration in the universe. That the more successful you get, the more likely you are to be evil, just for the the fun of it. Because the most powerful being in the whole universe and the Lovecraft um, works is evil. So, yeah. I guess there's a mix of those two things. I've always thought that with Bond. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that Drax is Lovecraftian. That'd be quite a funny thought. Like he's turning into a giant monster or something. But it was probably the next stage of his plan. Yeah, yeah, genetic modification. <laughs> genetic modification. Even for Drax, maybe just killing off the the human race on Earth. Maybe it wasn't enough. It's like he will always strive for more no matter what. Wait, I mean, go out to the universe. <laughs> Expanding his operations in the universe. <laughs> just creating the Drax Empire, just spreading across the stars. I mean, the thing is, though, you could... It would be quite funny, actually, to imagine a universe where, like, like one of the Bond villains wins. What would happen in the future? Do you know what I mean? What would be the future of humanity in that world? I what if, like, Drax had a son up there and he had sort of, like, different ideas? You know, I mean, who would make, who'd be in charge of all the decisions then? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you could always you could almost imagine that, like, a, a post-Drax victory universe would be, like, the, the universe of the Dune universe. You ever heard of that? I feel like I've been told a few times to, to read it because, obviously, the new series is coming out. Or is it a like, film, actually? I think yeah. it's a film. It's the director of Blade Runner that's doing it, isn't it? I think so. Uh, the, the no, uh, 2049, the sequel. I did Sicario in a few films. He's really good. Um, It's completely mind-blanking right now, but he's, he is good. Um, What are your least favourite ones, I suppose? Is it the ones that are the least memorable? That's it. I, I think I was mentioning like the Casino Royale, like your your idea there. I mean, I suppose the Blofeld one, but the thing is, even then, Blofeld and... and uh, what about is, is it? Is it Spectre? He's in. Well, Blofeld's in a few. Which which version of Blofeld? I thought about the the Daniel Craig version. Spectre, yeah. Spectre, yeah. I um, was he even bothering to spying everybody for anyway? I mean, there's an element of pointlessness there, and also I loved the bit at the end. Remember the, the where he set the building up for Bond to turn up. Oh yeah, it's kind it's of similar to everywhere. like he put like the thing in the 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 gun training room and all that target practice room and. Mm-hmm. Like you can imagine Blofeld had ran there and just run around the whole building trying to get it all ready for Bond. I forgot you know? about did, that. <laughs> did somebody do a kind of trial run, a dress rehearsal <laughs> Bond? Yeah, and Blofeld now, was waiting at a specific point for him, wasn't he? Like, everything was all set up. Standing, waiting, attention. Oh, yeah. So dramatic. I mean, that was ridiculous. That was a... That end bit, actually... I mean, I, I think I criticised it on the cast, but, like, looking at it as the... The Bond scheme. I mean, that's an that's going right back to your kind of campy kind of ridiculous stuff. Do you know what I mean? But done with really seriously though, like with that which gritty Christopher Nolan tone, which maybe makes it work. I don't know. I don't. I don't laugh at it. Though. That's the thing. It's weird. It's just strange. I remember laughing as it was on. <laughs> I just found. It, I think it was the fact that it was crazy mixed with serious that made I, me laugh. I think you're meant to be kind of. Like no, you're not. I don't think you're meant to laugh. That's the thing. I think the the intention of the film is more about like kind of shocking you and yeah, it doesn't. Not you, but I find that the funniest. See, when you're not supposed to laugh, but you are laughing, I think that's the funniest thing. Like, yeah, but uh, then do you give the filmmakers merit 
and credit for when they because that's like an no 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 definitely definitely not like no. I mean that's an unintentional side yeah, effect yeah yeah I mean I guess like I can appreciate the scheme the silliness of the scheme oh, but yeah, yeah. I think that the like that's why I said I criticised it in the, the review because it's like looking at it in a different way but yeah. looking at it here like I actually can looking at it in this you can this you can appreciate angle. the zaniness of some of these plots uh, uh-huh. what about you Steve is there any ones you feel are the weakest uh, the one that I brought up previously um, obviously is the Elliot Carver one. Oh yeah no one ever dies the fact that he was ready to bring the world to the brink of nuclear war because his broadcast company couldn't get broadcasting rights in China mm-hmm. that will still for me I think I've gone on about it enough in the previous one so I will just end yeah. that by saying that that is the most ridiculous one <laughs> but the other one that I think got me is on a Majesty's Secret Service Blofeld's Angels of Death mm. the- yeah. oh yeah that was mine that's ridiculous I will let you go into that then, because I I found that I also found that particularly it's just so convoluted. Yeah, bring twelve random women. They happen to be beautiful women from different nationalities. Went to an allergies clinic, and then there brainwash them in their sleep to go back and effectively let off a a sort of nerve agent or something. Yeah. Um, and there's also that scene where they're all eating their country's stereotypical food. <laughs> oh, oh, oh no! Oh dear! <laughs> you know, I, I have to say that has to be just in general one of the absolute worst Bond moments of the whole type, the whole series. Actually, that's yeah. That's where being faithful to Fleming is almost it can be a flaw in a set. You know, that's that was all Fleming, I think, because they followed Fleming. Like page by page, I think Peter Hunt was. I don't I haven't read the book, but that's the what they said was the intention. And to do that, then you have to not sort of think about is this really making any sense? Does this work in a film? Like I think sometimes adaptations are smarter about it and know maybe that doesn't work. Chop and change here or whatever, and they didn't yeah. do that. And that's clearly for me because it takes away from some of the. The main focus of the film, which is the the building and, and up of the relationship uh, between Tracy and and Bond, and I saw I keep keeping on that they could have still had something going on with Blofeld, obviously, but I don't know, it it didn't work for me. It was kind of ridiculous. Gordon, where's where are you with that? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, actually, I made a few notes for Majesties as a whole, and that was one of the weaker points. Yeah, it just. It was just a, a bit of a, a lazy idea and I just it's maybe that's just your your excuse for for having a lot of um attractive women very <laughs> yeah. close to like being around Bond and maybe for um for Bond to get into some romantic situations. It was you know, maybe that yeah. I don't know if that was I I mean, yeah, like you said, I think the whole the whole that film is faithful to the book, so I guess that must have been in the book. It's not. I've not actually read the book. It seems crazy if they came up with it for that when it wasn't in the book. Uh, Peter Hunt, I, I don't see that being something they would have created because yeah. he he was just wanting to dial everything back. So then to have this bizarre brainwashing subplot um, in the background just no, it didn't work for me. It is one of the points I took I took off the film for me. Uh, okay. Is there any others, Gordon? Is there any you don't feel work? <clears throat> yeah, and I'm going to mention surprise, surprise. A certain Mister Toby Stevens, mm. Gustav Graves, die another day. Just yeah. bollocks, man. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, we talked about it. Um, Brilliant. A huge. Uh, what is it even like? Is a satellite or some huge swapping supposedly? Which, I mean, God knows how he built this thing and kind of got it into the the around the Earth's atmosphere. This thing that. Um, oh, he's going to be a humanitarian. It's going to, it's going to allow crops to grow all year round. And then, then he, his big end game is to so he can blow up the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. I think it's thing that is just such a, it's just an insane thing to do to make. Well, first of all, the whole try interfering with North Korea in the first place, but to to go to those lanes just to do that. And then, and the whole thing is, if he had the hovercrafts, he says, oh, they can float right up above the landmine. So can you not just like, use the hovercrafts? You know, why does he need to do all this? Oh, it's just so much, that, the film's just so fantastical. And yeah, it's one of these things, again, you know, there was potential there. And well, not, we've already, we've said enough, obviously, about the whole like gene therapy. It, it should have just been one villain, not a, a guy who became another guy. <laughs> that's the back of the box story synopsis a guy becomes another guy <laughs> and the, i think yeah, i'm all, almost as bad if, if not uh, equal level i think i i think below surprise surprise diamonds are forever blowfield's um big he, so he had a big sort of space a big um satellite but with, I, I don't really understand how the diamonds worked in the you know controlling the satellite or how it I don't really get that, and I, I just thought about that the whole um, the whole kind of master plan there was just it was a tired formula, you know. It was so much of that film was just the screenplay didn't they, it slightly didn't really give much thought to it, you know. It's like I think they took because they knew that in Fleming's novel the whole novel was about um, a diamond smuggling. It was like they, it was as though they were trying to find a way to link that to Blofeld, but the and it's like then. I don't know if it's believable. Bond, Blofeld's like kind of giving Bond these big tour of the the HQ, and he's saying, "Oh, basically it's controlled through this little cassette tape." And I think, "What? It's all oh, this is controlled through a cassette." Uh, yeah, uh, it's just silly. And then all the terrible special effects, and um, you get this whole sequence like they kind of wasted Connery's return. There's this, he's like rushing around with Willard White and an exasperated Felix Leiter just. Bond's just kind of like standing in the back, and Bond should be in the middle of the action, but they're trying, they're trying to like um, work out Blofeld's plot, and then it, that, that's when you actually see the, um, the the satellite opening up, and I mean John Barry's music's really because at that point was the only good thing about it. You know, it's like Bond's not actually doing anything of value; he's just standing around while Willard White figures it all out. It's just, yeah, uh, uh, so silly. Yep. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Well, Fran actually normally thinks it's one of his favourites, so maybe we don't. But um, <laughs> uh, okay, do okay. That will do our roundup, I think, of the villain schemes. Uh, that was fun to go over that. We are now very close to the actual film rankings. We've only got two other categories we're going to discuss. And then we'll be doing the full film rankings. So at that point, we will expunge everything there is to say about James Bond. We will be done 
to the point that you'll be sick of Bond and don't want to watch or talk about it ever again. <laughs> There's that much content we've made out of this. To say we've milked the franchise is, is kind of an understatement at this point. All right, guys, thanks for joining me. Uh, this has been fun, and we will be back next time for another podcast ranking Bond. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.